Good morning and welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thrilled that you are with us this morning. Uh, we're going to get right into it. So if you have a Bible with you or a copy of the scriptures on your, on your phone or smart device, uh, John chapter 8 is where we're going to be. We're continuing in a series called Love Walked Among Us, where we're looking at the person of Jesus through the gospel uh, narratives and, and really just kind of slowing down to see who he is and how he interacts um, with people that he encounters in his life. We're in John chapter 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, we're going to put the text up on the screen so that you can follow along with us. So John chapter 8. And again, uh, as we have been looking at these different scenarios and, and, and events in the life of Jesus, we really want to immerse ourselves in the story. So we're not just reading this uh, just for the sake of reading it. We really want to connect to what's happening here. So let's try to engage our imaginations as we read this. John chapter 8, and I'm going to start in verse Two. So we're talking about Jesus, and it says, At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, so these are the religious leaders, they brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, they say to him, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, to kill her by heaping stones on her. Now, what do you say? Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, asked her Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. You ever notice how polite you talk when you're in trouble? So... <laughs> Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. And God, thank you for your amazing provision this morning. And God, your kindness towards us, your attentiveness towards us. God, I thank you that you let us gather together and, and sing. God, I thank you for those who have led us in singing and worship. And God, the ability and the skill that you've given them. God, I thank you for this room that you're allowing us to be in. God, I thank you for your word that you've left us here. God, we just pray right now that you would speak to us. God, that you would, would teach us. I'm going to ask that you would pray um, just where you sit there. Pray that you'd have eyes to see and ears to hear something from God. And that God might, by the power of his spirit, speak to you this morning. Speak something very specific to you this morning. So pray for yourself that God would do that. I want to ask that you'd pray for me. I'm going to pray uh, that God would, would use me in a particular way. That God would um, speak to me as well. And that God might speak through me.
God, we do ask that you would teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come, that you would move in this room with freedom and that you'd bring illumination and revelation. Jesus, I pray that you would um, allow us to see just how beautiful and brilliant you are. And God, that our affection for you would be stirred up and our affections for lesser things and other things, God, would, would be exposed and God might be dealt with even this morning. God, I pray for your help. Jesus, I love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, this passage creates for us a little bit of an issue right off the bat. If, if, if in your Bible, there, there's a section right above um, chapter 8 there that says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this section here, this, this passage, John, that we wrote. So what does that mean? And I feel uh, if we're going to be Bible people, which we are, that we need to we need to take a peek into this and kind of try to try to help um, try to try to help work through this a little bit. So the New Testament that we know um, and that we have was originally written in Greek, and the first Greek New Testament came off a printing press in 1516, which means for about 1500 years, the manuscripts of the biblical books were passed down to us through handwritten copies. So, so, so the books of the New Testament were preserved for us by faithful, hardworking copyists. And this is how we have the actual words of the New Testament, because these writers wrote with their very hands these words. Now, None of the first original manuscripts is, is known to exist, and those original manuscripts don't have this story. So there's two roads here that we can go on. We can, we can go off on this textual criticism path where we, we drag out the whole process of how the Gospels came together, how the Scripture was actually put together, how the whole canon of the Word of God was put together. Because this book didn't just fall out of heaven with the nice leather cover and the red ribbon thing in the middle, right? This book is, a, is a, actually a product of centuries of writing by multiple different people, all led by the Holy Spirit, and eventually in history became accepted by our church fathers as the words of God. So there's this whole process, and there's a whole lot of intellectual study, and we could go down that road, and some of you would love that. And if you wanted to do that, then I need to sit down and we'll bring Tyler up here. And if it's time for a joke, I'll come back up and tell a joke. But then he's going to have to do most of the work there. Now, the other road is a little bit easier. It just says, ah, oh, it's been in there a long time. Let's just go read it and go for it. And, and that might be good for, for you and me, but that's not going to be good for your, your coworker. That's not going to be good for your neighbor. That's not going to be good for your friend at the gym that you've been talking to about Jesus. Because they're going to say, hey, I got that Bible that you gave me. And at the end of chapter 7, it says that this next part is not in the original manuscripts. And they're going to ask you about it. And you're going to be like, yeah, I, don't, I just go on Sunday and the guy tells stories. And sometimes I'll shout amen. But I don't, I don't know. And he's going to be like, that's why I don't believe the Bible. And you'll say, all right, we'll just start at verse 12. That's fine. We'll just skip that part, right? Now, I can't solve this really fast, but I do, like I said, feel like we need to work through it. So let me just work through it real briefly here, because I want to give you some things that you can latch onto that are going to be very helpful for you. We do have some incredible early manuscripts. We do have the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
But the manuscript that John wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't exist anymore, that original one. So what has happened over history is that manuscripts have been copied and copied over and over again, and pieces of them have survived. And those pieces have been put back together, and a very careful, spirit-led process has happened where the Gospels have been reconstructed. And in that process, all the people who've studied the ancient manuscripts, most of them do not believe that this story was in the original Gospel of John, meaning they don't believe that's where it fits. So stylistically, a lot of people believe that this feels like it's more written by Luke and not John. They're like, okay, well, why is it in John? Well, over a period of time, as church fathers were putting Scripture together, this story found a place in the gospel, and it could have been left behind. But I believe, and many others do, that this is a narrative account of a moment in the life of Jesus, and I believe it is a part of the Word of God. And scholars like Augustine, Jerome, it's in the New King James translation, they believe that this story is a narrative account of the Word of God. And, and now here's the big picture, and this is, if you, you can talk to your neighbor like this. So a lot of people don't believe that John actually wrote this, but there is a lot of evidence of the church fathers that this was an eyewitness account of Jesus and that this was part of the teachings of Jesus. Secondly, it's important to know that there is more material for Scripture than any other ancient task. So your professor at school that said, hey, you can't trust this book, but he reads the Iliad and the Odyssey, the manuscript evidence for this book blows that work out of the water. And not to say that those aren't true pieces of literature, but they might have like a dozen fragments of manuscript, but there are thousands. There's literally over 5,000 pieces of material pieced together by these church fathers, and there's far more than anything else that's out there in antiquity, there's the word of God hands down. Secondly, it has overwhelming unity. This book has overwhelming unity. There are no comparable books that have been written over centuries by all manner of people from different walks of life through different ages, looking through different lenses, and when it's put together by the Spirit of God, it's one seamless, unified story. The, the first, and, I, and this is probably the most important thing here, I think the first 11 verses of chapter 8 in the Gospel of John do nothing to take away from the clarity of the message of Jesus. In fact, the reason I do think it's part of the narrative story of the life of Jesus is because it absolutely amplifies the message of who Jesus is. I was talking to Tyler this morning, and I said, you know, the whole point of this series, Love Walked Among Us, is to amplify the life of Jesus. And I said, actually, that's the whole point of the Gospels. That's the whole point of the Scriptures, is to amplify the life of Jesus in this story that we see in Luke chapter 8, or excuse me, John chapter 8, is, is such a narrative that does that. Now, like I said, the whole idea behind this series is to slow down and to see Jesus in these gospel narratives. So here's what I want to do. I want to I kind of zoom out, look at the story, and then zoom in and see three characters in this narrative and see what we learn from them and see how we can walk in the way of Jesus. Uh, John Piper, who's an author and a pastor, he, speaking about this, finally, he says, the most remarkable point of this story is that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses changes its appointed punishment and reestablishes righteousness or rightness on the foundation of grace. 
And he says, I don't doubt that, that this is why the story was preserved. It's an amazing story, and it really is. So this is the story. The woman's caught in adultery. She's brought to Jesus. In verse 4 and 5, the scribes and the Pharisees, they put Jesus to the test, and they do this all throughout the Gospels. And so they come in, they say, teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act. Not like, hey, she has a reputation or somebody said of her. She's caught in the act of adultery. And they say in the law of Moses, the command is for us to kill her by heaping stones on her. And he says, what do you say? And and it's a blatant test to see if Jesus is going to contradict the law. Because the law says if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them should die. So there's already something kind of fishy going on here because the, only the woman is brought forward. There's no such thing as adultery where only one person is, is guilty. Um, but there she is and the man's not there. And so Jesus knows that they're using the law as a, as a, pre, as a pretext for the prejudice against him. And, and verse 6 makes it really clear. It, it says that this, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they're using her, they're using the law to get rid of Jesus. And in verse 7, Jesus says, let him who's without sin among you be the first one to throw a stone at her. Now, of course, that doesn't work as a basis for justice because no, there, no criminals would ever be brought before, uh, uh, brought to justice if judges had to be sinless. But what Jesus is doing is he's reestablishing righteousness or rightness, and he's going to do it on the foundation of grace. Because right now, what he's exposing in these Pharisees and these religious leaders is there's, there's, zo- there's zero grace, there's zero humility, there's zero compassion, which ultimately means there's zero law-keeping. Because throughout the Gospels, Jesus was always standing against the Pharisees' view of the law, and he, and he was saying um, to them, go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, he's saying, look, the law is fulfilled in one word, love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so when Jesus says, the first one of you who's without sin, you throw the stone, he exposes their misuse of, of the law. Uh, he, he really doesn't even enter into it because they didn't bring the man, and the law says you have to bring both. So they all walk away. And again, the point is not that judges and executioners must be sinless, but the point is that righteousness and justice should be founded on a gracious spirit. And if it's not, you get the heartlessness and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And that point is made throughout the Gospels, not just in this narrative. So they're all gone. Jesus ends the story saying to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, he's not saying, neither do I condemn you, so it doesn't matter if you commit adultery. But he says, but I am reestablishing righteousness in your life. And for the Pharisees, if they'd have it, on the basis of an experience of grace, don't commit adultery anymore. Not mainly because you fear the stoning, but because you've had this radical encounter with grace, because you've been rescued by grace. Okay, so now let's zoom in, and I want to look at the three characters in this, in this story. First thing, I want to look at Jesus. And there's something that I think that's really beautiful and unique and brilliant about Jesus in this story. The first thing that we see is that boundaries are blown up and dividing walls are torn down when people experience Jesus. In every place that grace and truth is operating, where love is working, dividing walls are being brought down, you have these Pharisees whose very title communicates that they are set apart. They're set apart by their self-righteousness and a woman who's set apart by her sinfulness. 
And we, and we can't dismiss the fact that it's a woman who's brought forward into the presence of this rabbi, this Jewish teacher in Jesus. And just to give you a little context and culture of the day, there was a regular prayer that would be prayed by the rabbis and it would be taught to young Jewish men who were, who were studying the Torah. And, and they would say this benediction three times a day. And this is, this is what they would say, these, these three things they, they must say every day. Blessed be he who did not make me a Gentile, meaning non-Jew, Blessed be he who did not make me a slave, but a free man. And blessed be he who did not make me a woman. I don't pray this prayer. Don't make, I don't, I'm just saying it's a thing. So when a woman is brought in, not just any woman, but a sinful woman, a woman caught in adultery, it's a shocking scenario. But the thing that we see about Jesus, and if you look at his life through the, through the Gospels, it's how women seem to take a sort of priority with him. They're obviously not valued in the culture, but they have tremendous value with Jesus. If you look at his life, you see that there's women that are around him and the disciples. Some of the women help to fund the ministry of Jesus. It's women primarily we find at the foot of the cross. The first one to see a risen Christ revealed is a, is a woman. Over and over again, women, this incredibly marginalized group in society, is brought to the forefront and has priority with Jesus. And it's an interesting thing for us to think about that when, when Jesus goes and moves through life, he's tearing down these boundaries that society has built up. And when we are a people who walk in grace and love and truth, we can break down those dividers and we can say, I can accept you. It's a really radical concept in the story that a rabbi would allow this woman to be in his presence and that he would engage these Pharisees in this topic. And that he would publicly not chastise this woman, but he would bless her. It's good news for her and it's good news today because we live in a culture that really likes to divide. We're, we're not really keen on looking to understand those that look differently or act differently or think differently. And sadly, sometimes that even creeps into the church. But when Jesus comes, his message is radical good news because Jesus is present, dividing walls are broken down. When grace and truth operate in love, reconciliation happens. So we see that in the person of Jesus there. Now let's look at the Pharisees. What happens when grace and truth operate in their lives? Hypocrisy is halted. When they encounter love, hypocrisy is halted. What happened so often in the life of Jesus was that people, and mostly these Pharisees, these religious leaders of the time, they'd bring Jesus another person, another problem, another challenge. They, they, they'd come to Jesus and say, what do, you, what do you think about divorce? Or, or who is really my neighbor? If you remember the story of the rich young ruler, he, he came to Jesus trying to justify himself. And they continue to put these issues and these people in front of Jesus. And what Jesus always does is he turns the finger around and points it back at them. Paul Miller, who wrote the book Love Walked Among Us, it's where we got the title of the series. It's a, we're using it as a supplement as we study the series together. Um, in this chapter, talking about this story, he writes about something that he calls beam research that he takes from Matthew chapter 6. He's in, in a, it's where Jesus teaches, why don't we deal with the log or the beam in our eye before we deal with the speck in your neighbor's eye? And, and he says this about it, about this encounter right here. He says, Jesus simplifies a complex situation by encouraging, and get this phrase, self-reflective repentance. Self-reflective repentance. He did not simplify the situation as our culture does by saying, look, adultery is okay because it feels good. He affirms God's rule. You should not commit adultery when he tells her, sin no more. 
the law itself was not corrupt. The corruption was in the accusers' hearts, in their self-righteousness. You see, Jesus is most interested in what's going on in their hearts, not necessarily what's happening out there. And so a very simple question for us as we look at that is that, who are we pointing fingers at? Who are you holding a stone up against? Your boss? Your spouse? If they would just... You ever say that if you're married in here? You ever say that? You know, our marriage would be a lot easier if you would just... How's that work? If you just did things the way I told you to do them. If you just thought the way that I think. Your parents. Oh, my parents, if they just understood... What bugs you in other people? What stones are you holding up against somebody else? And what Jesus says, look, I want to do something in you, in your heart. Because what he knows about us is that many of us hunt down the sins in others that we shelter in ourselves. You ever notice that? I easily point out things in others, but I shelter it in my own life. Miller says in that chapter, he says, the only way to be honest without being judgmental to love with grace and truth is not by learning a principle, but by going through a process where you reflect, how do I do the same thing? How do I do the same thing? My, my wife and I um, were meeting with a couple that is getting married this week um, uh, and, and, and having dinner with them and doing a little kind of premarital coaching conversation. And I gave them a, a tool to use in their marriage. And I said, a good way to kind of do like a checkup to see how you guys are doing in marriage is to, uh, to ask your spouse this question. Ask them, what's it like to be married to me? And then just be quiet, like as in you stop talking. I said, that's a good exercise. And I'm kind of an idiot because I had my wife there and she's like, you don't ever ask me that question. <clears throat> and I was like, baby, I know what it's like to be married to me. We don't even have to, we've been married so long, it's like an unspoken thing, I know. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a great question for us to ask, how do I do the same thing that I'm holding a stone up against another person for? I want to give you some real practical things on how to deal with this. Usually the practical things all come at the end. So if you, if you fell asleep, wake up real quick. Um, and I want to work through these, some of these practical things. We're going to put some of these things on the screen so you can actually write some of this stuff down. I'm going to give you some principles and some practical tools to use. Because if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, so does this mean that I can't ever tell anybody that they're wrong? No, because Jesus spent his whole ministry telling people they're wrong. So it doesn't mean that you can't tell people they're wrong. It means that we can do that without judging. You judge someone when you assess their position, but you dismiss them as a person. You judge someone when you assess their position, but you dismiss them as a person. If you were here last week, Tyler talked about how when we dehumanize people, we, we, we don't treat them as humans. You won't treat them as people. I was reading through the story uh, yesterday, actually, one more time, and it really hit me. 
uh, I've got two young daughters, and I, what if my daughter was in this scenario? What if my daughter was in this story? There's somehow, some way, some, some things had gone wrong in life, and it was, she was the one that was in that situation. She's brought before the law. She's condemned to death because of something that she had done that was deserving of death. How would I want her to be treated? Not a position, it's a person. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus in John 3, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, not condemning does not mean not telling the truth. It's about casting a person off after you tell them the truth. It's what you do after you tell someone the truth that determines whether or not you are condemning or judging them. You see, after telling us the truth, Jesus brought us close. He made us who are sinners his friends. Judging reflects the ignorance of our own sinfulness. When Jesus talks about the speck in your neighbor's eye and the beam in your own, he's getting at hypocrisy. So yes, he's telling you not to be a blatant hypocrite, but I think he's actually getting at something more because he's confronting us for failing to grapple with our own sinfulness. Jesus assumes the beam in our eye. It's not if there is a beam in your eye. There is a beam in your eye. John Owen, who's a Puritan writer, he said this, the seed of every sin is in every heart. He's talking about a, a doctrine, this theological truth that, that we've talked about here quite often, this idea of depravity, meaning this sin is in all of us. So when I'm talking to, sin, or to someone in sin or in error, I should be painfully aware that I am infected with the same sinful stuff that they are. And what did I receive in Jesus? Mercy. Well, that's true. Shouldn't that change my tone? Shouldn't that change my approach? If you fail to forgive, you're enraged at someone else's sin more than your own, or you cut off those that disagree with you, or you gossip about that person, or you write someone off as hopeless, you are judging and you've forgotten the gospel and the love of Jesus towards you. All right, so here are some tools to use when we must operate in grace and truth. The first one is make prayer your main weapon. Make prayer your main weapon. Only the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit can change a person. If you are married and you have tried to change your spouse by reminding them over and over and over and over and over again about what they have done wrong and how you'd like them to change, how does that work? The Holy Spirit changes a person. E.M. Bounds writes this, We shouldn't try to talk to a person about God or about godly things without also talking to God about that person. Make prayer your main weapon. Secondly, seek conversion to Christ before persuasion to your point of view. The, the issue is Jesus or how we're not living like Jesus, how we're not thinking like Jesus, how we're not believing in Jesus to be the solution or the answer. You can be right, but he's the one who makes the difference. So help them see the person of Jesus, not just your position. Seek conversion to Christ before persuasion to your point of view. Next, devote yourself to listening before speaking. Devote yourself to listening before speaking. Our good friend Tom Schrader used to say, you have two ears and one mouth. Respect the ratio. <laughs> Practice compassionate curiosity. 
Compassionate curiosity looks like this. Help me understand why you think the way that you do. And then listen. Help me understand why it is that you act the way that you do. Help me understand why it is that you see the world the way that you do. Help me understand why it is that you react to this scenario in this way. What's happened to get you to be at that place? What, what's going on? What has happened? What's in, what's in your life? Practice compassionate curiosity. Help me understand. Next, be patient with the pace of God in someone's life. He who began a good work in you and in them will be faithful to complete it in his time. Remember the patience of God towards you and in your life. And be patient with the pace of God in someone else's life. And then lastly, it's okay to back out of destructive and dangerous relationships. Compassion doesn't mean that you just have to bite your lip and bear up under abuse. It's okay to back out of destructive and dangerous relationships. So we see how Jesus deals with the hypocrisy of the Pharisee, and the last person in the story is the woman. And in her life, we see that when she encounters the love of Jesus, when she encounters this grace and truth at this collision, sin is surrendered. Sin is surrendered. What captivates me about Jesus' response to her is the order of what he said. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, a lot of times when we hear that, we reverse it. We say, okay, if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. That's how we treat people. But he was telling her to change, not in order to be accepted, but to change because he had already accepted her. Religion usually tells you that change comes first and acceptance second, but the gospel reverses those. It tells us that change comes from acceptance, not for it. You see, Jesus knew she'd never have the ability to break free of the idolatry that led her to adultery in the first place until she saw and felt the embrace of a God who was better than what she had sought in adultery. Listen, this is very important. God's acceptance is the power that liberates us from sin, not the reward for having liberated ourselves. Salvation is a gift that is given to undeserving people like this woman, like you, like me. And that's what lifts them out of the captivity to sin. I've got three young kids, nine, seven, and five, and my, my five-year-old son, Silas, uh, has been into Legos for a long time. And when he was younger, just like a few years ago, when he was first getting into Legos, he was always putting them in his mouth. He was always chewing it on, on Legos. And so I'd have to chase him down, pin him down, do the CPR finger sweep thing, and take it out and be like, hey, don't eat these. That's bad for you. You can choke and die. And he's pretty dense, so he still puts him in his mouth, right? He's five now. But now, I don't have to chase him down. I can just say, Silas. And he'll just go. <laughs> or, or I'll just put my hand underneath his mouth. And he'll spit the gnarly, slimy Lego head out into my mouth. Now, every time we see Jesus full of grace and truth, here's what happens. When he's around people who are holding on to things that lead to death, he opens up his hands and he says, I'd love to take that from you. What you're holding on to is killing you. What you're holding on to is destructive and dangerous and doesn't lead to life. And every time he opens up his hands and he said, I'd love to take that from you. 
And so to the woman, he doesn't pull back. He says, go, leave your life of sin. He labels sin. He says, what you're doing is wrong. He doesn't just look the other way and let it slide. He's calling it what it is, and he's calling her to obedience and to turn from it. Jesus says, my grace is not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. Someone has to pay. If, if I lend you my iPhone and you smash it, I, I've, I've got a couple options. One, I can say, all right, thanks. Uh, that'll be $500 to replace my phone. Or I can just say, hey, you know what? It's all good. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Now, if I ask you for the 500 bucks and that's too much and you can't pay, that doesn't fix it because you can't pay it. That doesn't replace my phone. Um, or if I just let you off the hook, that doesn't fix it either because that doesn't replace my phone. But there is a third way. I'll pay for it. I'll cover it. Some of you are thinking, well, what about Apple Care? Well, you can't put that in there because it ruins the illustration. <clears throat> but you see, that's what Jesus did. It costs him everything to cleanse you, to save you, to set you right with God, which is why he is the only one who can say to you, will you surrender that sin that is killing you? This is the beauty of the gospel. The, the love, the grace, and the truth of Jesus gives us the opportunity to be free. The, the Apostle Paul, he writes to this young man, Timothy, and he essentially writes, look, Timothy, you got to know, man, I am the worst of the worst. What that means for us is that you and I can say, this is who I am. I can be authentic and true about who I am because grace and truth allow me to be that person and they allow me to change. When I assess my life, I can authentically admit I, I struggle with anger. I struggle with jealousy. I, I have these addictions. I have these fears. I'm selfish. And as the gospel and the grace and truth of Jesus, the love of Jesus impacts you, Jesus extends his hands out and he says, look, you can surrender that. I'd love to take that from you. He says, my grace is more than enough for that. You see, destinies are determined when people encounter the grace and truth and love of Jesus. You ever been around a marriage that was just a wreck, had no hope? And then there's this collision with Jesus, this intersection of Jesus. Now there's hope in the marriage. You ever been around a family that's broken and fractured? Jesus intersects and there's reconciliation. One of the coolest things um, that I've gotten to witness in the past year and a half, two years, we had this young gal, she's a single mom, started coming to 710, which is our young adult um, college community here. Uh, really rough life. Two kids, um, has substance abuse, has addiction in her past, just really just kind of a, a train wreck of things that had happened. And when she was pretty much at her rock bottom, gets introduced to the 710 community, in fact, goes and lives with uh, RC, or small group leader, one of whom's on our counseling team here at the church, so you know she's hearing truth and, and grace over and over again. And it's been amazing to watch this process of people come around and love her, and people come around and speak truth to her and show grace to her and how through that she comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. She was baptized in this very room. And now there's this process of faith. There's this process of confidence. And God's way of living really is the best way to life. I really do find life in Jesus and in the way that he's called me to live. And as everything just get magically fixed, no, but now there's this process of someone who's walking in freedom. Why? Because destinies are determined 
meaning life is changed when grace and truth and the love of Jesus intersect in our lives. So I have a question for us as we end. What about, just go with me, being a church that lived this out? What about being a church that's marked by truth and grace, radically generous grace, and at the same time, a liberating truth that tells people about the way that God has prescribed for us to live in joyful obedience to him, all under the banner of love, because we know how much we've been loved by God in Christ Jesus. And what if, what if we as a church like that began to live like that, began to act that out? It showed up everywhere we went. It was, it was being proclaimed and experienced in the way that we lived our lives as a people of grace and truth in love. And what if we start to saw a, a, a city change because we embody what we see in our Savior, because what resides in Jesus begins to take root and reside in us? Let's pray about that. God, I thank you for um, what we see in the life of Jesus here. God, I thank you for this moment that he has um, where he displays this amazing grace, incredible mercy, and love. And God, it would, it would be such a shame for us to just have sat here these 35 minutes or so and just listen to that and think, man, that was a neat story. And God, it would be such a shame for us to not be impacted by this to where now, God, you, Jesus, begin to shape the way that we live our lives, especially when we encounter those who have rebelled against your way of living. God, the same mercy um, that you've applied to us, God, would we apply it to others? The same way, God, that you have treated us as our sins deserve, God, would we treat others like that? And God, now as we go to this time of communion, we remember why all of this is possible. Because of your cross, Jesus. Because of your resurrection. Because of the power of your spirit in us. I love you. It's in your name I pray, amen.